Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. The dramatic fall and destruction of Ayutthaya in 1767 has been the subject of films, television shows, songs and books for popular audiences in classrooms of Thailand and Myanmar by invoking a sense of historical animosity. But what was Ayutthaya before its downfall? How did it become so successful? And if it was such a success, why did it collapse so quickly? With us to explore answers to these and other questions is Chris Baker, an historian and independent researcher who is co-author with Pasuk Pongbajit of A History of Ayutthaya Siam in the Early Modern World, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. He's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the College of Asia and the Pacific Australian National University. Chris, thanks for joining me to discuss this fascinating new book of yours. Thank you too, Nick. In the preface to the book, you note that to this day, there is no academic study of the full four centuries of Siam in the Ayutthaya era. Well, there is now. Why did it take so long for this book to be written, and how was it that you and your co-author decided that you were the ones to write it? It's strange, because when the Europeans turned up in Asia in the 16th century, they decided there were three great places. There was India, there was China, and there was Ayutthaya Siam. But it's nowhere reflected in the historiography. There are, of course, several uh, very important books, most notably Chanwit Gesetzeri's study of the rise of Ayutthaya. But that deals only with the first part, and it's a book that is now over 40 years old, so it's extraordinary there's been nothing of that scale. And I think there are two reasons which are to do with the domestic historiography in Thailand and with the international one. The domestic one is that the Thai historians uh, almost a century ago decided that the Sukhothai kingdom in the 12th, 13th, 14th century was the acme of Thai civilization and was the precursor of the state of the present day. So there's a lot of interest in Sukhothai. And then there was a lot of interest in what happened after Ayutthaya in the Bangkok era, which leads down to the present day. And sort of Ayutthaya became the bit in between. And because Sukhothai had to be a high point and Bangkok had to be a high point, Ayutthaya had to be a low point. So it was seen as being a time when these great Thai values had been besmirched 
partly by the Khmer, who were bringing in things like slavery and god kings, and partly by the Burmese, who kept attacking Ayutthaya. So there wasn't much written on Ayutthaya for a long, long time. In the international historiography, it's just simply that the first stage of writing Southeast Asian history in the post-colonial era was done from the old colonial capitals. So the British scholars writing about Singapore and Malaysia and Dutch writing about Indonesia and French about Vietnam. And so Siam, Thailand had no post-colonial patron like that until the Americans came along, and that took a little bit of time as well. So it tended to get lost in the middle there. How Pasukanai came to write it is partly that I, having now lived in Thailand for nearly nearly 40 years, and most of that time spent my time you know, privately scavenging around the history and going to the places and reading the books anyway. But then when we wrote the history of Thailand, which essentially is a book, it's about the Bangkok era, the last 200 years. We wrote a long prologue, which went through Sukhothai and Ayutthaya and the modern era. But the publisher said, oh, we don't want that. We want something shorter and more modern. So we just cut it off and sort of put it aside and didn't look at it for about 10 years. And then I got asked to give a lecture on Ayutthaya and I picked it out and read it through and thought, actually, this is not bad. Plus, since around 2000, a lot of new sources have become available and quite a lot of new academic work. If you look at our bibliography, you'll find a lot of it is post-2000. So although we had this old draft we'd written, in fact, there's hardly a sentence left from that in the book that finally came out. Then we talked to Ajahn Chanwit and he said, well, you have to finish it by April 2017 because that's the... 250 years of the fall, which in fact we didn't quite make, but we very nearly did. The basic outline of the book covers the period before Ayutthaya comes into being, as it were, and then there are a couple of chapters on militarism and consolidation, on commercial success, diplomacy and law, and then at the end we come to defeat and disarray and what comes afterwards. So let's work through them. What was there before this city that was named Ayutthaya, and whereabouts also are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the, the lower part of the Chaupia Valley, and that's a large, very flat alluvial plain that's been created over many centuries. And it's a plain that in the past, until modern irrigation works, would flood every year archaeologists and art historians have done a great job in the last 20 to 30 years of reconstructing the history of this area with the coming of the rice agriculture, the, the coming of the Iron Age and, and the Bronze Age, the gradual filling up of people, mostly probably migrating in along the coasts. And then a culture based upon towns, very much sort of urban settlements, walled urban settlements growing up in this area from about the 5th, 6th century, and which is sometimes now called the Varavati. And then on top of that, then you start to get the in-migration of the people we think of as Dai or Thai, coming in essentially from southern China, where they are being forced out by the expansion of the Han Chinese into southern China from about 7th, 8th century CE onwards. And this spurs these migrations, which go all the way across to Southeast Asia, to Assam. 
but also forced downwards into the area we now think of as Thailand and Laos. And at the end of this period, you get the appearance of these little Thai kingdoms, of which the most famous is Sukhothai, up in the northern part of the plain. But then something somehow happens. But this town, which becomes Ayutthaya, which is really just to bend in the river, in not in fact the Chalpia River, it's one of the other rivers, the Lotbury River, which is probably turned into a moated settlement by digging a canal across the fourth side. And it was probably a sort of Khmer-style settlement from before this era, but no one has done the archaeology to really find that. But the extraordinary thing is that it starts to appear under the name Xi'an in the Chinese records from the 1280s. And the Arab records and the Malay records and some of the early Portuguese ones tell a rather extraordinary story that this merging city does two things. One is it sends raiding parties down the peninsula to Malacca, to Temasek, Singapore, and across to Sumatra. And it's clearly building the city by trade and raid, which is classic of Southeast Asia through many centuries. What they're seizing and taking back, we cannot be really sure. But pretty clearly they were taking back people, skilled people, probably gold and silver and all kinds of other articles of value, things that are made to build a city. But the second thing that happens in this period is that Sien becomes the single most important trading partner of China in a time China's looking out to the world. Although we have very little description of the city in this time is really only one good description, which is by the scribe on the Chenghe voyages, the great uh, Chinese admiral who came out in the 1420s. And he writes a very nice uh, little description of the city, which gives the impression of a kind of rowdy port. And he describes the king as being dressed just the same as everyone else in a loincloth, distinguished only by having a piece of coloured cloth around his waist. When he goes out, he just rides on one elephant. He has one attendant with one umbrella. So it's a much simpler kind of city and state than we see much later. So how did Ayutthaya come to surpass other cities in the plain? And when did that happen? We don't really know because there is so little information, so few sources on this period. But what it seems to have done is to have emerged victorious, partly, I think, by trading skill, but partly by military might, in becoming the centre of a coalition of emerging towns in this area. And all of these are towns which seem to have had some Khmer influence earlier and now seem to, to grow up as a kind of marine consolidation. You write that by the 14th century, cities were increasingly coming into armed conflict. What were they fighting over and what were the consequences of these conflicts for Ayutthaya? It's a really dramatic change because while you have this trading, raiding activity going on all the time, this is fairly small scale. But in the 1420s and 1430s, Ayutthaya sends out three military expeditions, one to Chiang Mai, the famous one to Angkor, and one across to the west coast 
of the peninsula. And this is farther than armies could reach in the past. And it starts off a period when for the next 170 and 100 to 180 years, there is very continuous, almost continuous warfare campaigns every one or two years, which draws in all the other sort of political centres in mainland Southeast Asia. And the impetus from this is obviously, you know, the expansive ambitions of, of rulers, but it's also clearly aided by technology. We all know about the gunpowder technology, which comes in first from China and then from Europe, particularly in the, in the 16th century. But I think th- there are two others that are important and probably important earlier too. One is the elephant. We know that uh, when the Portuguese first came to Ayutthaya, they said they counted the number of elephants and it was just a few thousand. And when they counted again 20 or 30 years later, they're talking about you know 50,000 more elephants or something like that. So there was enormous hunting for elephants. And that's because they had three very important uses in warfare. One is just for transport. They keep the king and the nobles above the fray. And also they're just terrifying when they charge. So uh, you, we see the kings hunting for elephants to swell their elephant armies. But the other technology is mercenaries. There's a market for mercenaries that grows up in this period. So they're coming from Europe. They're particularly Portuguese and there's Turks. But there's also coming from the east coast of Africa and from all around the Indonesian archipelago. And They change warfare because they're professional fighters. You know, they're not people who are just recruited and forced to fight given a a sword. And, And I think this ushers in a really nasty period in the history because the society gets militarized for war. This is the time when all the controls on manpower, they're not originated this time, but they're made more systematic. People were incentivized to go to war in the palace law. There's a range of rewards you get for depending on what you do on the battlefield. And it must be, I think, although we have, of course, no statistics, a period when the population goes down, um, partly because of the death on the battlefield, but more because dragging enormous armies across the landscape uh, spread famine and spread disease. But it comes to an end by around 1600. First, because the technology of defence improves. The cities build much better walls, brick walls, and they invest in cannon and they practice scorched earth. So these sieges of cities start to fail. And of course, once that fails, then the rewards of going to warfare also drop down because you're not winning battles and getting rewarded. And so there's a revolt, very much a kind of popular revolt against recruitment. In Burma, there's a big slave revolt by, by recruits, but nothing like that in Siam. But you get more people uh, going into the monkhood, fleeing into the forest, or simply bribing the recruiting agents. So by the end of about 1600, the warfare just kind of dribbles away. Who was the Ayutthaya kingdom fighting against? Well, the long-running fight is against Lana, is against Chiang Mai. And that is to control the area in between them. And eventually that area is absorbed into Ayutthaya's territory. There's also the warfare against the Burmese centres, particularly, of course, Pegu. 
some fighting with Vietnam and constant attempts to control Cambodia, which don't seem to have succeeded as well as many people have thought. How does this period of militarization come to a close and what comes after it? There's a sort of symbolic ending because King Nari Suan, who's the great hero king of this period, he attacks into Burma in the early 1600s and he dies on campaign and he swears his brother and uh, lieutenant, Ekatot Sorot, to continue the campaign, to take the Burmese capital and to enter the capital with Narisuan's body strapped to the head of the elephant. It's probably a myth, but it's symbolically it's a wonderful story because Ekatot Sarot, the brother, does none of that. He turns his elephant straight round, marches straight home, and in the next few years when he is king, seems not to have led an army out at all. And in the next 150-odd years, there's very little military adventurism by Ayutthaya at all. And this provides the opportunity for all the energies of this city to be transferred from war to commerce. So this is the time when Ayutthaya very quickly rises into a very prosperous maritime trading state in the first 30 years of the 17th century. And although it takes a part in Anthony Reid's Age of Commerce, which is uh, stimulated by the Europeans coming into Southeast Asia. We think that it's the Asian trade which is much more important to Ayutthaya. Ayutthaya doesn't have all that much to do with the Europeans. What the trade of Ayutthaya is, is between the great Asian capitals of this era. To the west, you, you have Mughal India and Safavid Persia and Ottoman Turkey. And to the east, you have Mingqing, China, and you have Tokugawa, Japan. And these are all places which produce high-value manufactured goods and have very rich consumer markets. So there is great incentives to trade between these areas from east to west and back again. But the sticking point is, is that the traders don't want to go through the Straits of Malacca partly because it's pirates and partly because, of course, it then comes to be controlled by the Portuguese and then by the Dutch. So what Ayutthaya offers is an entrepôt for exchange, which is away from these European-controlled areas, but also a portage route across the upper part of the peninsula to take goods across. Ayutthaya looks to be inconvenient because it's some way up a river. It takes you several days tacking your ship up a river. But actually, that's exactly what makes it safe. If you look at the history of the coastal ports, particularly places like Songkla and Patani in this era, they get sacked by pirates every 10 or 20 years. But of course, Ayutthaya never gets sacked. And it's also safe against the Europeans. There's just one attempt by a, a European ship it to try and sort of force its way up and be aggressive in the Chaupia River, and it's very quickly dealt with. So Ayutthaya then, the trade grows, and the striking part of this is how much of the profit of this trade is grabbed by the crown. It's done by enforcing monopolies on trade, by enforcing taxes, by becoming importers. I mean, King Narai was importing 
cloth and selling it in the markets and imposing a monopoly on the betel nut that everybody chewed. So the crown becomes fabulously wealthy. And this great wealth is used to finance what we think of as absolutism. Um, And it's actually very similar to European-style absolutism. It's concentration of power in the hands of the monarchy. It's the elevation of the monarchy, and particularly the person of the king, into kind of a superhuman form. And that's done by mystifying the king, building palaces with huge walls, which hides him from sight, having him appear in public, making everyone come out to see him, but forbidding them to look upon his body, all kinds of this stuff to make the king very much elevated um, above criticism and sort of above humanity. But the cost of this period of absolutism is that because so much depends upon royal power, the succession from one king to a next becomes the time when political power is decided. And every single succession is contested from from those and onwards, except one. And they are contested by warfare, basically local warfare, fighting in the palace, fighting in the city, sometimes going on for a couple of years. And this is very destructive for the nobility at this time because they have to line up behind the candidates for the kingship and those who lose get slaughtered in the purges that follow. And uh, the kings also, we see them doing not only at the times of succession, but at other times, purging. Uh, those nobles who seem to be becoming uh, more and more powerful. And what else happens in this period is that the kings increasingly call upon the services of foreigners to staff the higher levels of the officialdom. This starts earlier in 1620s. I think there are Chinese before that, but from 1620s onwards, you see uh, Japanese coming in. But the most successful are the Persians. So so several families of Persians who come from these families of Persians who go all all over the East in this period as traders and administrators. They became immensely powerful at Ayutthaya through probably the 1640s, 50s, 60s. And then you see in the 1660s, 1670s, Narai increasingly turning to Europeans. He hopes he can use in the same kind of system and also sees that they bringing to him new kinds of technologies. So they're being also used to you know, build his palaces, make his gardens and, and all kinds of other, other things as well. So it's this strange merchant absolutism using uh, foreign assistance, which is able to, I think, domesticate and, and intimidate the local nobility. But they recover and then assert themselves, but in the 18th century, not so much in the 17th. We'll turn to the 18th century in a moment after pausing for a sponsor's message. We'll talk a bit about a provocative thesis you have around the late Ayutthaya period, the fall of Ayutthaya, the sources you used for the book, and a lot more. 
New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Chris Baker about a history of Ayutthaya. Chris, one thing we didn't touch on before the break was the role of Buddhism in state practices of the period you were just discussing. Buddhism is enormously important to this society. Um, We know that Buddhism came into the region way, way back, in fact, probably in the early common era. But the big change important change came when this new Lanka Buddhism, Buddhism from Ceylon, from Sri Lanka, which we now call Theravada, came in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And what seems to have been important about this was that it was really a religion of mass participation. It was a religion in which anybody, any male, can become a monk. And there were probably far more female renunciants, far more nuns back in this earlier period than there are now. But also that uh, everyone takes part in supporting the monkhood because they depend upon arms and the building of temples and other religious stuff also depends upon the patronage of the laity. So it is, I think that it's this that makes it so powerful in this period. The Europeans who, when they come in the 16th, 17th century, they are intent upon surpassing, uh, superseding Buddhism. So they tend to sneer at it. And when they first see statues of the Buddha, they think this is some kind of idol worship. But after a time, when they start to appreciate it, when they appreciate the role of the renunciant monk, when they see the degree of popular support, they get very impressed by Buddhism in this period. And it clearly is enormously powerful within this society. And therefore, obviously then, it's very important for the kings, it's very important for the ambitious political rulers to develop a relationship with Buddhism. And this is somewhat successful and somewhat not. We can see from the period of Sukhothai, which is when this Lankan Buddhism was coming in, that the kings were not particularly successful in exerting their control over the monkhood. The monks did a very good job of keeping themselves relatively separate. And there's a tradition of writing chronicles in this region. Partly one side is written by the palace, and they, of course, praise the kings all along. But there's another tradition of writing chronicles in the Wat, in the temple, done by the monks. And they are highly critical of the kings. They grade how good they are as kings, depending on how good they are to the people and how generous they are in supporting the monkhood. The kings can somehow, at certain points, can clearly appoint the heads of the monastic hierarchy. But I don't think they can go much beyond that. Their control is really quite limited. And this becomes very important when King Narai starts to move close to the Europeans, particularly to the French. And this clearly creates a fear that the French are attempting to gain a kind of mass conversion of Siam through 
the king. So there is a cry of Buddhism and danger which goes up at this period. And this is a very important factor in the succession dispute that takes place when King Narai dies in 1688. So Petracha, who was a noble, who essentially does a coup and succeeds King Narai, a man who has no real royal blood, he does so by presenting himself as the defender of Buddhism against the threat that is coming from the West. You advance a provocative thesis in the fifth chapter of the book. What is it and how does it depart from existing interpretation? Everyone who's, who has studied this period in Ayutthaya assumes that this is a peasant society. In other words, it's a society in which the majority and perhaps the vast majority of people are living in villages, living on the land and making their primary living by agriculture. I spent a long time trying to research about this peasant society and all kinds of records. And there's so little, in fact, almost nothing in any of the records. So at some point, finally said, well, why don't we say perhaps there wasn't a peasant society? And then what? when we take that attitude, what do we see? And then it becomes very interesting because if you look at the amount of labour that is needed for the production of the staple of rice in this period. It's very small. So then look around, you discover, yes, there does seem to be a kind of commuter agriculture. That is that people in the city, they owned plots of land in areas outside the city, which were called tung, which we know, which is like a rice plain. And we also have reports of the people going out at the harvest season to harvest and bring the crop back into the city. Then if you calculate using the earliest kind of yield data that's available, how much land is needed to supply Ayutthaya with rice, turns out it's like a circle with a a radius of nine kilometers. But it wouldn't be like nine to ten, it wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be a circle. It's obviously up the rivers because the rivers are the quick modes of transportation. So, but apart from the staple, you also have wonderful reports about fishing saying, you know, you only have to fish for a couple of hours and you've got enough fish for several weeks. For fruit and vegetable, it sort of grew on the hedgerows and you just picked it up. And then, of course, there's all kinds of other forms of protein, like snakes and birds and beetles and all kinds of things. So it's a sort of semi hunter-gatherer economy with this commuter rice agriculture as well. So we think that it's not a peasant society. Most of the people live in towns. They either live in the big city of Ayutthaya or in, uh, there's about a hundred places which um, we can find mentioned in this era, which you can plot on maps. And some of these are probably quite small, but we think most of the population was concentrated in perhaps 10 to 20 places which were all of a significant size. And their main occupations would have been making things, trading things and personal service. And agriculture was like a part-time occupation. Once you see this, it starts to explain some other rather strange things about uh, Siam in the past. And that is that there was no land tax. You can find little 
mentions of land tax, but it's clear there was no general land tax. And wherever you get a peasant society, the rulers will try to extract a land tax because it's by far the easiest tax to administer. And it also helps to explain why the major way of taxing the people was through labour services, by demanding that they gave six months of their time to the state. Such a form of taxation, when you took people away from their normal activities for six months of the year on a kind of rotation, would be impossible in an agrarian society. In the late Ayutthaya period, what would have been the size of the population? We know that they took regular censuses for recruitment, but the one count which is reported by La Loubert in the 1680s is 1.9 million. We don't really know what area that means, but it probably means Old Siam is basically what we think of as the central plain of Thailand today. So it's very small, and it's obviously very small because of the high degree of disease. And that's clear Because you see, when you defeat disease by vaccination from the early 20th century and then DDT and other things to kill mosquitoes, the population increases by 10 times within one century. You mentioned that you looked at all kinds of records. Tell us a bit more about the source materials you're looking at for this period and the kinds of things that you uncovered in them. And how do they compare to the source materials that are available for the earlier periods that you've already addressed? The amount of Thai language records that survived the fall of Ayutthaya in 1767 is fairly limited. So there are several versions of the Royal Chronicles, which are all much the same. There's two, basically two different versions. And then there is a what, the chronicle that came from the monkhood. But they're sort of very limited in the scope of what they're talking about. They're talking about the religion, they're talking about the monarchy. There's then this enormous collection of laws, which is the old Ayutthaya law books, which were collected and re-edited in 1805. And they are absolutely fascinating because law was very important in this society and therefore it deals with all kinds of things. The difficulty is that we can see that the dates on most of these laws are wrong. But we, at this point, don't really know how to correct them. So they're slightly difficult to read. From the 16th century onwards, there's a lot of material that comes from outside observers, from the French, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British, some Chinese, some Japanese, Persians. Now, of course, you have to be a little bit careful of using such sources because this is filtered through a non-native perception of the society. But having said that, I mean, that is something every historian learns when you start using sources. You ask, what are the assumptions of who wrote these sources and in what, whose interest was this source compiled? You obviously have that to go on. And what is useful, I think, is that in the last 20 to 30 years, a lot more of this material has become available. So it's possible to be more comparative. And I think then there are other things which are very good. I think more than other people, we have used literature. There's not much of this, but what there is, is exceptionally good. It's been hidden in the past, partly because the language is very difficult. This is old Thai, which is similar to Anglo-Saxon, to modern English. But luckily, 
there have been some very good scholars more recently who have done annotated editions of this stuff, which makes it possible to read. So, for instance, we've made a lot of use of this Yuan Pai, this wonderful military poem back from the 15th century. And we've used Kun Chan and Kun Pan, this marvellous bucolic epic, which probably deals with the 17th to the 18th century and gives a kind of panoptic view of the society, rather like, you know, Victorian novels or in this sort of way. And I think finally, well, two other things. There's more visual material has become available. We have been around and looked at I think almost all of the temple murals that are believed to have uh, existed from the Ayutthaya era. And they're very interesting because towards the end of this era, the artist started drawing scenes of everyday life, but also more of illustrated manuscripts, which seem to become very important from the 18th century onwards. And there's more of these have become available but because of digitalization. I guess last is just the landscape. Um, Pasuk and I have spent a lot of time travelling around, just looking at places and looking at things. So I remember very well a long time ago going to see Gampang Pet, which is one of the kind of minor places of the Sukhothai kingdom. And we were riding around there on bicycles and what we found, you know, was every corner there would be a ruin of what was obviously a little neighbourhood temple. And this showed you that in the past this had an enormous population and now you can, of course, you know, you can ride around it on Google Earth, which makes it even easier. You'll get less exercise that way. <laughs> You've already mentioned 1767. What happened? Things were going so well. How did they go so wrong so quickly? The old story about the fall of Ayutthaya is decline into fall. The idea was that from 1688 onwards, this society went into decline, resulting eventually in the fall. And the decline happened because in 1688, the Europeans left, the economy went down, the new dynasty came in, and and they were hopeless, and they fought with one another, blah, blah, blah. But the new view, and this doesn't come from our book, it's been done by several Thai historians, but most particularly by Sunet, is that, in fact, the 18th century was the most prosperous century. In fact, after 1688, the Ayutthaya prospered even more than ever. The British and French who left had never been important in the economy. The Chinese became much more important. There's a big Chinese immigration into Ayutthaya. Ayutthaya starts to export rice to southern China from the 1720s onwards. The royal monopolization of the profits of, of trade in this um, of the economy diminishes. So you see the wealth spreading much wider. You can see the growth of consumption in things like cloth and in pottery and in other things. And you also see a turmoil in the society, which is the kind of turmoil which comes when new money is upsetting old hierarchies. So you get some revolts, but much more interestingly, you get lots of complaints about corruption because people are using money to buy posts, just like they do in the police nowadays. It's exactly the same. And you get people of the old aristocracy writing tracts complaining that everything is going to be hot and the world is being turned upside down and all this kinds of thing which you always get at times of this kind of change and this is a period of great cultural production in the murals and the manuscripts in literary production in things like Kunchan Kunpan but also the import of an adaptation of stories from China, from India, from Persia, from everywhere. So it's very rich and it's doing very, very well. 
But what it does not do is update its defensive systems in line with its prosperity. People no longer want to be recruited to go out in these conscript armies. So it's very difficult to recruit people. The market for mercenaries seems to have collapsed. There's still Mon and Jan being recruited, but there's none of this sort of Turks and uh, people from the archipelago anymore. But there is almost no move towards a kind of professionalization of the army. So what happens is that the Burmese king begins to realize that Ayutthaya is terribly vulnerable, that it's A, rich, and B, very vulnerable. So what is put together in the 1760s is a kind of joint stock army. There's 40 different princes or nobles or local lords who pool their resources, pool their money and pool their men in order to launch this attack on Ayutthaya. So this is much bigger in terms of a military exploit enterprise than anything seen in recent years. And Ayutthaya's defences at this time, it's quite logical. I mean, they have they build and rebuild the walls several times so that they are much stronger. They buy an enormous amount of hardware, of cannon. So when the Burmese break open the arsenals, they're astounded by how much they find in there. And this, the walls and the cannon, can keep an invader at bay for so many months, and then they rely upon the annual flooding of the monsoon to clear the invader away. But what the Burmese do, because of the greater prize, is that they invest in a two-year campaign. Quite how this is done is not very clear, but it means they, they don't go away as usual at the end of the first year, but stay on and close a siege, which eventually brings the city down. It's possible that they are helped by climate in this period. In the new data that is coming out now, you can see that this period uh, in the 18th century seems to have rather low rainfall. So it may have been also the flood was not as effective as it had been in the past. So what they cart away from Ayutthaya is all the resources that make a kingdom and also make an aristocracy as well. So they take away all of the the craftsmen, all of the dancers, all of the hairdressers. They take away the Buddha images. They strip the gold off the temples. Uh, They take away as many of the weapons as they can carry. And they take away huge numbers of people, several tens of thousands of people as well. And then they burn what they cannot take. So the idea is to remove a capital which was a competitor to theirs. And that contrasts in some ways with the earlier periods where the mode of invasion and occupation and suzerainty was somewhat different to this more destructive impulse. I think it is. And and you can see also when after Ayutthaya has recovered 50, 60 years later, it basically does the same thing to William Dunn, to, to the Lao capital uh, in 1828. And what comes after the fall? Once you lop the head off, once you take the peak away, it breaks into constituent parts. So you get five or six successor kingdoms. But then this Chinese adventurer, Daxin, who is obviously a brilliant leader and a brilliant military man, manages to pull them back together in a relatively quick time, within about 10 years, and relocate the capital to Bangkok. 
and then there is a slow period of rebuilding. But it's not kind of re-centralized in the way that we you can see by late Ayutthaya until the time of King Chulalongkorn in the 1870s and 1880s. And the population decreases enormously. But large parts of the west of Siam are depopulated for 40 or 50 years. And much of Lana, much of Chiang Mai in that area is also depopulated for a long period of time. But this gradually grows up again. It starts to recover as Bangkok starts to get integrated into the colonial uh, economy of the high colonial era. Chris, you and your co-author Pasuk have been incredibly industrious in the last couple of decades, and I can't imagine that there isn't something uh, underway, probably already at a manuscript stage right now. So what can we look forward to from you next? We've got very interested in the literature, partly from doing IUTA, but other interests as well. So we are concentrating quite a lot on translation at the moment. We translated the great folk epic poem, almost eight or ten years ago. And this is really the great piece of of the Thai literature from the late Ayutthaya era. It's a simply wonderful piece. Uh, Unfortunately, there's nothing uh, else quite like that. However, the other great source of literature, if you like, which is popular rather than core, are in the Jataka tales, these birth stories of the Buddha. And there's, of course, the famous collection of Jataka tales from India, 500 50-odd. But then stories written in the same style started to appear in Southeast Asia from somewhere, sometime in the last 500 years. And these were gradually collected into collections which are called the 50 Jataka, even though they don't have 50. And there's a collection of these made in Bangkok by Prince Damrong in the 1820s. So we have translated those. They're wonderful stories. Many of them are very old tales, which were then converted into a Jataka, because that's how you get preserved, because then monks keep them and copy them and store them in libraries. And many other of them are sort of moral tales. So that's almost being produced. There are then There's really five pieces of early Thai literature, mostly from the late 15th century. And one of those we've already done Yuan Pai, then two others, which are Lilit Pralo, which is a court romance, but a very interesting court romance. And we're doing that at the moment. And an even more wonderful one, which is called Twelve Months, which is a poem of lost love. It's an elegy, really. And it's someone, a male, who has lost his love and laments for her through a year. So each month is kind of like a canto and uses metaphors from the weather and other things. And it is just fabulous. Any plans on the way to translate a history of Yudhya or produce a Thai language version of the text? Oh, yes, definitely. We have tried using translators before and it never works because you spend more time correcting it than doing it. So we do it ourselves. This means Pasuk is doing it herself because I can't do the first round. I can edit, but I can't do the first round. So she started. Yes, she's finished one chapter. It'll come. Great. So that's something for our Thai language readership and listenership to look forward to. Chris Baker, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss a history of UTR. My pleasure. Great fun. Thank you.
And thanks to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in Shane Strati talking about the Lost Territories, Thailand's history of national humiliation, or Kathleen Baldanza on Ming, China and Vietnam, negotiating borders in early modern Asia. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or on iTunes. Monkey! Hey, Hey, thank God,